Welcome everyone to one more episode of our live talks. Today we are in episode number 13 and I'm here with Professor Cristiana Santos and Professor Woodrow Hartzog and we are going to talk about tackling dark patterns and online manipulation in 2024. While we wait for everybody to arrive, I want you to please share in the chat where are you connecting from and why are you here? So why are you interested in dark patterns if you want to share uh, in the chat? Um, and meanwhile, also, if you have, uh, I just want to share that we will have uh, a short time for questions at the end. So if pay, stay at the end, if you have questions, have, have a traditional, no AI, so just pen and paper, take notes while we are speaking. And we have time for one or two questions uh, before, uh, before the one hour session. So please get ready and we are going to have the short time for questions. Uh, before we start, I'd like to thank our sponsor, uh, special thanks to MindOS, um, and this is their message. Get better data mapping with MindOS unique data discovery classification solution for a nearly complete data map within hours. See how it is possible at www.mindos.ai. So I'll soon post the link in the chat for you to check it out. Uh, welcome, Christiana and, and Woodrow. So if you want to share some uh, words with the audience to, to say hello, to ask them uh, something for them to, to write in the chat, you're welcome. I think Christiana's going to write something in the chat. <laughs> it's I'm a to be here. Right Thank you so much. You're welcome, Woody. My pleasure. Let me just write the mineos.ai. Thank you, Louisa. It's a pleasure to be here with you again. We have exchanged before, you have taught uh, dark patterns and in, in my dark patterns and data protection course. So I'm always happy to learn from you and to exchange with you. With pleasure. So for those who know, so uh, Professor Santos, she's Portuguese and I'm Brazilian. So when we don't want everybody to understand what we're speaking, we'll, we'll speak in Portuguese. <laughs> in Portuguese. Yes. So today we will talk about the past, the present and the future of dark patterns laws against dark patterns and the challenges of regulating design, dark patterns in code, the challenges of identifying, documenting, and curbing online manipulation, and deepfakes, anthropomorphisms, and other forms of AI-related manipulation. So before we start, also, please, if you want to get informed of the next events and also to receive uh, information about privacy tech and AI, subscribe to my newsletter. You have here the link under my name. You can see the, the, the address. So let's start. Let's start first with the, this idea of the past, the present, and the future of dark patterns. And I think the best way to start is with Woody's book. Uh, in 2018, he wrote Pri Privacy's Blueprint, the battle to control the design of new technologies. I, I would say it, it's the first book, uh, the first big book that really changed how we see technology and design. Perhaps it was published precisely on the exact time that it should be published because then the discussion got bigger and, and so many things that we see today connected to dark patterns and connected to this broad approach to regulating technology. Come, the discussion comes from Woody's book. So uh, maybe maybe we start, Woody, you want to share a little bit how it was the process of, of writing the book? And also, so my question was, so we're talking about press, press, past, present, and future. So first, when you wrote the book and when you compare to what, what we saw in 2018 and today, 2024, did anything change? Did your opinion change? Where, do, what, do, you hold, like, do you think about regulating design in the same way? So yeah, this is the question. Sure, thank you so much. That's such a great question. I appreciate you starting with the book. It did come out right at the right time. The book actually came out um, within a week of the Cambridge Analytica sort of debacle. And so, of course, that's one of the most important dark patterns, FTC complaints. And so it really hit um, uh, maybe at the worst time, best time. I don't know, depending on which way you're looking at it. Um, the, my entry into this world started and when I started really thinking about the book was when I met up with a, uh, a computer scientist named Greg Conti, who was studying at the time what he called malicious interfaces or evil interfaces back in 2010. Um, and, it, it, and that's really when I began to draw the lines between policy and design and, and privacy. Um, and when the book came out, I tried to be um, uh, uh, 
all inclusive about all the possible concerns that we have about design, ways that design helps us, ways that may maybe design pushes back against us. And so if you read the book, you'll see that uh, I try to think about policy frameworks at least in three different flavors, the soft approach, the moderate approach, and the hard approach. And the soft approach would be kind of our notice and choice or, or uh, co-regulatory responses and thinking about um, uh, private initiatives and things like that. The moderate response would be duties and, and making sure that we rigorously enforce the rules that we have uh, existing. And then the, the more robust regulatory approach would be things like very significant rules and outright prohibitions or bans uh, relating to the design of information technologies. And if your question is what has changed between 2018 and 2024, I will tell you, if I had to rewrite the book now, I would advocate significantly more strongly for a robust approach to regulating design. I think that self-regulatory efforts have largely um, floundered. I think that moderate approaches are doomed to get kind of watered down by industry attempts when it comes to regulatory policy. And so I think that we need strong, robust and bright line rules for regulating the design of information technologies. Thank you, Woody. And and for, for Christiana, I have also another question. For for those who don't know Christiana's work, she is, I, I was I was kidding uh, in the in the, the backstage, she's the queen of empirical studies in dark patterns. So if you if you legal up, empirical studies. <laughs> legal empirical studies. Uh, uh, around dark matter. So if you if you look up her name, you'll see uh, so many uh, points of view when she talks about legitimate interest and and dark patterns in code and dark patterns in UX. So it's, it's really interesting. So so you're for already a few years researching dark patterns and conducting empirical studies, and thinking about past, present, and future. What would you say that has changed from when you started a few years ago? And there were so many new reports and laws and cases. And I think the culture around dark patterns has changed, right? It was so fast in recent years. So how, from also from a legal empirical perspective, how, what what has changed from when you started until now? Oh, nice, nice, nice question. So actually, um, I started to study dark patterns or deceptive design. Um, together with my colleague, computer science, Natalia Bielova, and uh, with Colin Gray. So actually we were detecting legal violations from the privacy directive and from the GDPR. And actually we came across this, uh, th this uh, uh, seminal paper from Colin on, the, on this initial five uh, types of dark patterns. And we just mapped this GDPR and privacy directive violations to these dark patterns. And uh, we started our, our collaboration since then. And uh, I will put the, the link of this paper in our chat. The legal requirements, dark patterns and the legal requirements for constant banners. And we studied dark patterns from the user perspective, the UI artifact, the designer perspective, and also from the contextual ecosystem, including the legal perspective. And it was a major success because we understood dark patterns from all this multi-role uh, setting. And uh, yes, you're right, since when? 2020, 20, 2019, 2020, until last year, multiple academic uh, uh, sources and regulatory reports around five. I mean, let, let me see. Brignol started, Bosch, uh, Gray, right? Colin Gray, Mature et al, and the, all these papers, Duguri, and, um, but also, again, Ari Brignall in 2022. So all these academic resources with full of, full of taxonomies. And then come, what comes next? Regulatory reports. So the European Data Protection Board um, uh, taxonomy of dark patterns that might not always map to other taxonomies, the CMA, the FTC on the other side, the European Commission, and the OECD uh, uh, taxonomies. So can you imagine that since these couple of years, uh, 245 distinctive practices and definitions of dark patterns emerged? Yes, 245. So what do we do in, the, in these circumstances? Mapping, uh, obviously, in a systematized way, uh, this academic knowledge and this regulatory knowledge uh, of dark patterns. 
and uh, therefore we wanted right to map all this knowledge and provide a unified uh, definition of dark patterns types so we came up um, with an ontology of dark patterns types to facilitate term terminology use and consistent uh, consistent reuse of such types of dark patterns across communities so across regulators uh, privacy professionals design professionals right uh, for the academic community as well and also potentially ideally informing future legal decisions uh, i mean we already know that there are three or at least four decisions in Europe from a data protection perspective mentioning explicitly dark patterns. So we see there is a, a confluence on uh, regulating and sanctioning dark patterns, which did not happen before. But, but let me correct. It's not that beforehand there were no decisions on dark patterns. In, in our database of deceptive design cases, there are more than 100 decisions finding dark patterns, but they were not explicitly mentioned therein. But now, since 2023, at least three decisions really refer explicitly in the EU on dark patterns. And this is a major success, right? So this is what so far I have, uh, I can comment upon the past and the present of dark patterns. And, and a follow-up question, what do you think had, has happened? I think I think the most prolific year in terms of reports was 2022, from what yeah. I spoke from my list. So what has happened? What, what happened in 2020? Is, is there one specific, from, also for you, Woody, did you see anything from from 2000 and this transition, 21, 22, something? What, what happened? What, what, why did people suddenly, and, and regulators, and what, what happened? What do you think? What was why the did, boom? Uh, yeah, why, why suddenly? Because dark patterns are there. Right, since at least since heavy social media, I, we could say many many factors that may, that can prove that dark patterns are there for much uh, longer than than 2022. So, what happened in your view? I think it was uh, so. We had decisions already from uh, from uh, consumer agencies in Europe much before 2022, and and also uh, also regarding DPA decisions. They just did not explicitly mention the concept of dark patterns or very concrete dark patterns types. But mm -hmm. leveraging from our knowledge on, on, on legal violations and of, about the conceptualization of dark patterns practices, we, we match, right? Mm -hmm. um, so having knowledge on consumer law, on data protection law is essential to map to these conceptualizations. And I think that linking violations to dark patterns practices was was inevitable, right? Mm -hmm. So, oh, a dark pattern can be sanctioned and is sanctioned. Mm -hmm. And so considering this, uh, this uh, uh, or factoring the risk of violations and of sanctions is a big uh, step, mm -hmm. right? Not only for the academic uh, scholarship, but also for the regulatory environment. So this mapping of Uh, dark patterns practices into very concrete fines in the EU, but mostly in the US, because the FTC is, is uh, far-fetched in dark patterns uh, uh, regulation and sanctioning, was, I think, the, the, the boost. Mm -hmm. So the taxonomies and enforcement, both together. So now we have a name and we, we know it's forbidden. Then we, we have the, the perfect case for more reports. It's forbidden and, and it's it's fined, hefty fines, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for those not aware, I, I, I still, from, I think from my records, maybe Christiane and Woody, you tell me if I'm wrong, is the Epic uh, FTC versus Epic Games is the largest so far, right? $520 million for, from, from my records. So that for you, for those that think that Dark Patterns fines are, are, are not so large, uh, the, so it was Epic Games against Dark, uh, against uh, FTC about the game Fortnite. So they had a uh, half was children's privacy, but even the children's privacy part had dark patterns and the other half was explicit dark patterns. So as Christiane is saying, fines, they are really uh, significant, significant now. So okay. let's let's uh, proceed to, to the second topic today. I want to talk a little bit about loss against dark patterns and also the challenges of regulating design. So going back to Woody's book and, and, and this era, Woody's era, era of uh, regulating, how do we regulate design? 
So today, uh, if we think about major laws or, or laws that have uh, explicit global influence, we have at least the DSA, so the Digital Services Act in Europe, the, it expressly mentions the word dark pattern. I think maybe Christina has a more, uh, uh, maybe a more diverse record from the whole world, but from Europe is the DSA, which mentions, and from the US we have the CCPA when it was amended by the CPRA. Uh, it says that the, about talks about manipulation. It says that consent obtained obtained through dark patterns is forbidden. So we have those those two major laws and other laws. And I know states in the U.S. they're also mentioning dark patterns. And the AI Act man, brings manipulation. The Data Act manipul not necessarily mentions dark pattern, but brings. So my question is, maybe let's start with Woody. So do you think that the current approach? Let's take the, these two. The, Let's take the CCPA, for example. The, the express ban is consent obtained through dark patterns is forbidden. And, and also the DSA has laws against manipulation. So do you, do you, are you optimistic on those uh, ways of regulating dark patterns? Or you're, you think it's not going to be effective? What, what's your, 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 let's say, your prediction from, from what you're seeing? So that's a really great question. And I actually, maybe this is as good a time as any to give you a preview of the latest uh, research that I'm working on with, with respect to dark patterns. So um, there's a, another scholar that uh, Christiana also works with, Joanna Gunnowan, who's a, a PhD student uh, fixing to be a, a law professor at Maastricht University, um, who is uh, in collaboration with Neil Richards and I, um, we are working on a new project where we're making the claim that dark patterns, as it has been conceptualized in law and policy, um, right now is a relatively limited concept because it is built around the concept of interference with choice. Um, now, you may be thinking, well, wait a second, isn't dark patterns all about choices? And it is, but the way it's been conceptualized and manifested in the CCPA and the Colorado regs um, is largely about avoiding interfaces that interfere with the ability, with the ability of people, of individuals um, to assess risk and then make a choice based on those particular kinds of risks, right? Or make some sort of meaningful autonomous decision. Um, and I, I like the way in which a lot of these laws have thought about dark patterns, but um, I think that I, I worry that they don't go far enough because they um, enshrine a conceptualization, uh, a very individualistic conceptualization of the way in which we want to go about um, uh, empowering individuals um, rather than a collective approach to design mm -hmm. and collective well being. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the ways in which the law now has conceptualized dark patterns would drive policymakers looking for evidence of manipulation to look at individual decisions, right? Like, would you have clicked on this or would you have clicked on that? Um, what's the extent of manipulation? What's, right? And, and I think that this puts us right back into thinking about privacy in terms of control, consent, and choice, which is something that I've been critiquing for a long time. And so um, we're proposing, so Joanne and Neil and I are proposing that in, at least when it comes to policy, that one way to build upon dark patterns is to actually think about all of this in terms of disloyal design and thinking about uh, the way in which industry makes design decisions that act against our best interests. Um, and so that people are protected no matter what they choose, right? If, if they're influenced one way um, or another. And we think that this is a better way of incorporating human values. This is a, weather, a better way of incorporating the collective good rather than just individual decision-making um, mm. as a more long-term sustainable way to think about um, dark patterns. And so um, there's a lot more to unpack there, but, but uh, I, I'll just say I'm actually tentatively optimistic that some of the um, broader uh, law and policy, for example, the FTC's approach to unfair and deceptive trade practices is actually a little more agile and nimble in incorporating the sort of concerns around disloyal design rather than the, the slightly more narrow way in which dark patterns has been conceptualized in the CCPA or the Colorado Privacy Act, for example. 
you kind of would it be right to say that it's a more paternalistic approach in the sense of what's the right thing to do as a company or as a, or as a choice architect what's the design that will be more fair or, or uh, beneficial regardless of the vulnerabilities or regardless of the individual that you interact with in this sense like of, of a more I'd say I, I would call it in my PhD research I talk I, I bring a little bit this, this question and my approach is in the sense of more paternalism and fairness focusing on fairness as, as a like mm -hmm. a, a test let's say and then we, we we don't think so much about about the choice in the concrete case maybe this case that person chose correctly but you you, you have a spectrum of of vulnerability or capacity of, of choice. But that's right. Really exactly. I, I think that's exactly right. I do think that it's more about thinking about not just fairness, but but uh, subservience of your own financial interests in service of the people who are made vulnerable through a choice architecture. Um, and so I think that what that involves in is creating an environment where um, no matter what people choose, it's relatively safe. And and we we draw from a lot of lessons from fiduciary law duties of loyalty, duties of care, and duties of confidentiality, rather than what I think is honestly a failed and broken approach to consent and giving people control. Um, you can get, you can still empower people's choices and give them agency within a loyalty regime, but you do so within a set of choices, all of which are safe and have our best interests at heart, rather than um, uh, basically allowing a, a sort of exploitation um, under the illusion of giving you control or choice. And, and Christiana, you want, you want to add something? I think maybe it's very interesting. You, uh, we will talk about it later, but, but from the... So Christiana recently, her article on legitimate interest, so she analyzed the dark patterns uh, in the context of GDPR's legitimate interest. So this article uh, received an award. What, so tell me again the name of the award, uh, Rodota, I forgot. Uh, yes, it's a Council of Europe Awards. Um, and it's, uh, I don't want to brag, but it's the highest uh, award regarding the domain of data protection. And this is, this is a, a it's, it's a legal and an empirical paper. Huh? And what is fantastic is this um, recognized uh, joint and uh, transdisciplinary work. We are several authors led by Lynn, um, and uh, we have both uh, computer science uh, human-computer interaction and legal expertise gathered in this paper. And so it, it is not a, a traditional legal doctrinal approach, right? But it converges these empirical and legal um, methods into understanding in practice how legitimate interests are used. And so we um, took a double, uh, a three-edged approach. So we... we, we um, made a user uh, survey, around 400 participants, if, not, if I'm not mistaken, and we made a crawl on 10,000 websites, uh, privacy, uh, uh, consent banners uh, uh, websites, right? And so, I mean, we all know that legal, the, the legal basis of legitimate interest, and I'm sure that everybody is acquainted with this legal basis, is, kind, is considered or speculative considered as somehow a loophole for collecting more data due to the flexibility, ambiguity, or porosity of this legal basis, right? So actually, there is a, a, there is a big interest on this legal basis because several data protection authorities are, have been issued decisions on this. There are some pending uh, Court of Justice decisions on legitimate interest, and they also merited attention by the European Commission. And so how to go through this speculation or, or intuition of how this legitimate interest is used in theory, let's see how they, they work in practice. So uh, we made this um, survey and this uh, crawling of websites, and we found several types of dark patterns and uh, related to the user interface, but also related to the text, so to the linguistic level. And we found that actually uh, dark patterns reliant on um, a legitimate interest uh, legal basis are more complex, harder to avoid than actually dark, constant related dark patterns. And I think this was, you know, uh, the tipping point of this paper. So uh, I can say some of the tricky practices that we have detected. Uh, do you want me to proceed? 
yeah. I, I can re I remember some of them. So it is very hard for users to object to the use of legitimate interest. Sometimes taking uh, two, three actions to object to legitimate interest. Some users um, answered in the survey that they believed that their data was collected in the in their own legitimate interests of, of their of the users, not of the third parties or society or data controllers in concrete or third, so. Um, I mean, it's a, it's it's sad, right? And uh, the the concrete legitimate interest was not defined whatsoever. Um, I think that uh, yeah. The, it was very hard to understand the use of the toggle. It was very uh, uh, dubious, the, the consideration of the toggle, whether was it consent, whether a concrete purpose was used under legitimate interests. Um, several sites demanded the user to object to legitimate interest purposes and vendors. So imagine going through down uh, and, and objecting to individually to the vendors as well, and to all the purposes, per purpose as well. And you know that this, this design aspect is very problematic because user, users will not go down at all, right? They will just accept and, and proceed. And this will likely lead to a low interactive or iteration rate. And um, very interestingly, most websites deploying legitimate interest legal basis in deceptive design practices used the uh, IEB Europe, the Transparency and Consent Framework, which you know for sure it is being uh, polemically used as of today and is being um, at the focus of the Court of Justice due to its uh, incompliant practices. And, and also, well, well, whether, on, whether they do process personal data or, or not within the consent string, uh, but we already know the practices uh, uh, that CMPs, consent management platforms, that are uh, registered as IABTCF, how these designs of these CMPs facilitate, by default, dark patterns at scale due to their templates that they offer by default to their websites. So, And uh, very interestingly, this legal basis was mostly used for advertising purposes. And in our survey, we understood that actually users are not at all prone to accept tracking and their legitimate interest for advertising purposes. This was something that was, uh, was very interesting as well, which somehow correlates with the, with the last case law regarding uh, the what is the appropriate legal basis uh, for uh, for advertising purposes and from my understanding third party advertising cannot be uh, cannot, cannot rely on interest right if you if you no. so I, I i i always take screenshots when i see cookie banners and you see 800 there, there are a few like this maybe it's uh, we can let's let's think positive maybe it was a mistake from the cmp maybe the the trainee didn't realize so 800 third parties under legitimate interests. How a legitimate interest to be collected uh, information by to 800 third parties? So this is really, and it's nothing to do with the I, IAB, right? It's uh, just purely. Oh, it, it has IAB. because these vendors are IAB registered. They are included in the global vendor list of this IAB TCF de facto standard. So yes, it, they are very related. Yeah, Both the CMPs that propagate these templates that are already biased. Sometimes mm -hmm. you need to, you know, object to legitimate interest on the third, fourth template, and you really need to be an expert, you know, uh, to check it. Uh, so imagine my, our grandmothers, our uh, people that are not expert in data protection, or that even there is a possibility to object to this. To legitimate interest-based purposes. Mm -hmm. And uh, lastly, it was very interesting to find that users correlate content-based services uh, with personalized uh, advertising purposes. So they, they, it means that users would also potentially object to both pur purposes at the same time because they are associated, correlated to advertising purposes. 
So mm. it was it, it was very interesting to know that not only dark patterns are related to consent, but also to legitimate interest. Huh? And uh, let's uh, continue from that. So the, the next topic is dark patterns in code, which is totally related to what we're already talking about. So just to explain to the audience, so Christiana, she also has, uh, I think, a, a few papers on, on empirical legal studies on the topic. So she has, uh, I think you were, you and your co-authors were the first ones to, to classify it. So this idea of dark patterns in code. So most of the time when we talk about dark patterns, we are talking about UX. So we are talking about what Harry Brignall said uh, in 2010, interfaces. So we are, talk we are talking about websites and colors and shapes and language, anything that has to do with the visual UX interaction and visual presentation of websites and apps. And, and Christiana, she, in her empirical studies, she detected some hybrid forms of dark patterns. They involve both the UX side and also the code, the, what's behind. And uh, especially in the data protection context, it has a lot to do with the CMPs, the consent management platforms. So maybe uh, I, I've, I've spoken, I, I love this. I think it's an amazing, and I, I see it happening a lot. And also I have a few websites and I've configured my cookie banners and I use different CMPs. And sometimes I wanted, so I know what, what I, I should do. So I, I wanted the like symmetric buttons with a, with a, a good contrast. And sometimes I could not, I, I had, I had paid the, the CMP and I said, I, I cannot continue because it will be a big dark. It will be a very green accept all and, and a transparent, which I, I could never use this. So it's, if it, and if you think about it in privacy, in practice, the CMPs have a lot of power. If they, they present you a default, Look, I, I am a specialist in the topic and I, I had to go to a great extent and try different ones to see the one that was, from my perspective, the one without dark patterns. So this should not be like this. But but I want to, to, to for Christina to talk a little bit about her study. Uh, and also from from what what you think would be the solution. So I, I see the, the a lot. So today there are many platforms, many companies offering this service of being intermediaries. So we, the companies have to collect consent. So, and they don't do it directly. They use CMP. So those platforms that are intermediaries. And Christiana will talk a little bit now about those dark patterns, those dark patterns in, in UX and code. And my, my follow-up question, I'm already saying, so what, how do we deal with this? So what, what's the, the like a, a possible regulatory solution? Thank you. This is, so let me just tell you something. I taught my husband on how to decline tracking purposes. So, <laughs> of course, this is we cannot have all this personalized approach. But uh, you know, you, your role uh, in these uh, podcasts and uh, and your articles are very important, also to broadcast the, this topic of dark patterns. So uh, let me give you a little bit of context on these code level dark patterns. In, uh, in our work with Mark Leiser on uh, dark patterns enforcement uh, and um, digital design quiz, we understood that there are some practices that are very evident, right? Very obvious uh, within the user interface that you mentioned on digital, on, on websites, on platforms. And they are very easily recognizable by users, by regulators, by auditors. So, for example, pre-check boxes, right? Uh, the lack of a button or uh, the, the red or the use of colors, prioritizing a decision. But uh, we also found the practices that are not so obvious, that are subtle, that are elusive, uh, that only uh, users realized later uh, after it happened or, or never. And they need uh, this uh, further oversight or scrutiny by auditors, by technical colleagues, by technical through technical expertise, right? Uh, through and also through regulatory authorities inspections on the websites themselves, and uh, how to how to understand them. We need computer scientists. So I've been working um, with Natalia Bielova from Inria, um, a computer scientist with a with a big with a background on consent detections and measurements. And so checking with her and with her uh, other colleagues on what happens beside, behind the scenes of a cookie banner, right? Of a consent banner. And so let me show you, let me, let me talk with you about some of these code-related dark patterns. Actually, they, they are mismatches between the user interface of a consent banner and consent registration. 
So what happens after we consent, right? Uh, we need tools for that. We need technical auditing. We just cannot do it uh, at the in the face of the website, right? So we can include tools and we need a little bit of technical expertise to understand whether certain purposes are essential or not, what is actually dropped, what is actually passed. Uh, so when a user interacts with a, with, a, with a constant banner, their decision is stored in a digital form, in a constant string, it is called, right? Within the user's browser. So what, what do we expect as users? That our choices made in the constant banner, in the UI, right, are, collect, uh, are <clears throat> correctly stored within the browser. But that's not the case at all. And, um, and also, we expect users that even before we made our choices, accept, reject, accept to certain purposes, etc., right, object to certain legitimate interest-based purposes, we believe that even before we make any sort of interaction, that no trackers are stored at all. <laughs> but uh, there is a big mismatch between what we believe, uh, our users' expectations, which is, are protected under the fairness principle, under the GDPR, and actually what is, is found behind the scenes, right? So we understood in our um, empirical and legal works that uh, consent can be stored before a user makes any sort of choice. Consent is stored even before the user, uh, uh, consent is stored even if the user rejected or withdraw consent. What is this? Sneaking practices, obstruction practices, right? Uh, forced action. These are called dark patterns, right? Um, others, other practices that we that we have identified in our papers uh, uh, refer to cases where the constant banner declared purposes um, declared uh, to process data only for necessary purposes, right? That we really require, for example, consent, but actually um, non-necessary purposes were used without user's consent, without appropriate legal basis, rendering all data processing illegal, et cetera, and many other, and many other studies. I mean, I'm very happy to share. So these actually entail um, sneaking, obstruction, and forced actions. And we can only understand that these dark patterns occur by technically understanding how consent works, how consent is stored, how consent is passed, through CMPs in a constant stream, upstream to vendors and feeding all the ad tracking ecosystem. This, uh, I mentioned some examples that are constant related, but this can apply to many other settings, right? And these are very serious. So uh, that's why we started this conversation uh, with the, the point that we need computer scientists working with legal scholars and working with HCI and, and, and design experts. This is the message of, of, um, that I wanted to transmit by working with uh, amazing people in, in these spaces. Joanna Gunawan is one example. Colin Gray, I've learned so much from this big expert in dark patterns. And with Natalia, obviously, and all our team. And specifically on, on the CMP. So you can imagine, let's say me, I, I'm a, a small business owner. And, and if, when you're a small business, you, you have to configure yourself. So I remember now you, you were talking about the, the CMP. So this intermediary when you're, when you're so basically for the audience, when you're, you, you have a website, you have to add a cookie banner. So how do you do it? You go to a, a third party, a provider, a CMP provider, and you, you, you connect your website and you, you create a, a line of code that you add to your website. So I, I remember the first time I was configuring it, 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 there was a box. So, and it was written, do you want uh, to collect cookie? What happens? So you have to choose what happens. So there was a question like this, what happens if the person doesn't interact with the banner? So if the person closes. So I, I had to choose, like, it was a dark pattern for me. So the, what, what should the, co the consent banner do? Collect to uh, store cookies or not store cookies? As if it was like, okay, it's, it's like a choice. And put put yourself in the place of a business uh, owner, a small business owner, or the owner of a bakery. I don't know. You just want to have your 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 bakery website. 
it, you don't understand that a production law. It looks like the same. Okay, should I should I store cookies? Maybe co I have a bakery. Cookies are tasty. Maybe people want cookies. What should I do? Yeah, so yeah. Store cookies or don't store. So it's a dark pattern in the background. So we, we don't even talk about it, right? In Behind the, the scenes, a user does not understand. And, and not everybody is Google, Meta. It's some people. They are just small business owners. They just want to do things right, and they they go to the extent of. Having a cookie banner with, I think, I, I would say that most small, com, small business owners would not do that. And it's they're trying to do good, do good. I, I'm doing good privacy. They told me data protection is good, and basically the choice there it doesn't it doesn't nudge me to do the right thing. So this is wrong. This if you do this, you're doing against the law. It doesn't tell me anything, and I'm I would not have, hire a lawyer just to do a cookie banner. So it was a whole experience. Configuring cookie banner was that there is. This is a study for you, Christina. The dark patterns in the configuration of the cookie banners, like a, oh a yes, so and you know, yeah, the CCMPs that actually offer these templates by default to website uh, owners or to website publishers can be considered in the circumstances data controllers jointly responsible with mm -hmm. the website owners. Right, so there is they a make big you, they make you check the box in some of them. They make you check a box. You are the sole controller, and then we no, that does not mean anything. These self declarations are meaningless. Yeah. So, but I, I also paid attention that make sure do it right because you are the controller here. Anything that happens, it's your fault. You yeah, are so, so you're a business owner. It yeah, yeah. You see, CMPs manipulating website owners. So in this B two B relationship. And the CMP is manipulating web users in themselves. So we have this bilateral relationship. Why there is no regulatory actions against CMPs? I don't know yet. I don't understand yeah. why. So now let's transition a little bit from uh, UX to AI. Uh, we we are 2020, from 2022 on. Any every talk has to have at least a little bit of AI, right? Otherwise, we are we are not like on, on brand. So I want to talk a little bit about dark uh, online manipulation more generally, and specifically the challenges of identifying, documenting, and curbing online manipulation. And I want to begin with Woody. So for those who don't know, Woody when he gave a congressional testimony in last year and it was a hearing about legislating AI so I think first of all I think none of us here has ever given a, a congressional testimony so may, maybe you can share a little bit about the, the experience to begin with uh, and also so let, let, let's start with that so I, let's, whatever you want to share with us the backstages there was a lot of gossip I'm kidding whatever you want to share with you about this this experience well, it was a really interesting experience. And so it's this started, um, I've been fortunate to testify, I think, four times now um, in front of uh, United States Congress on various different issues. And the way it usually starts and the way it started here is that someone, usually a staffer probably, read something that uh, I had written uh, either individually or, or, or with a group um, that was relevant to the topic. And... That's what happened here. I had uh, been part of a um, uh, initiating comments actually to the NTIA on their algorithmic accountability um, request for comments. And as part of that, um, uh, I joined the group at the Cordell Institute at Washington University. Um, and the Cordell Institute uh, and I, along with that, put together these comments that made the argument that everything that was being debated now in the world of artificial intelligence regulation um, was important, but it wasn't nearly enough. And that's what got the attention of some of the, the staffers um, working for Senators Blumenthal and Hawley, who were are chairing the uh, subcommittee that was having this hearing about regulating artificial intelligence. They called, they said, would you be interested in speaking on this? Um, we got a little bit of instruction about maybe what to expect and who else might be uh, uh, ready to show up. But but honestly, we just sort of uh, showed up uh, on the day and we we gave the testimony. And I think that it was a really interesting conversation, uh, mainly because I arrived thinking that there would be an incredible disagreement 
as to how to regulate artificial intelligence and that mm-hmm. there would be at least two sides, maybe more, that would be yelling at each other about, oh, you think that it's important to have big, strong rules, but we're going to hamper innovation and we can't do that. So we should have soft rules and co-regulatory rules. And, and actually, by the end of the, the event, uh, at least in this subcommittee, it seemed like almost everybody agreed on the big, important stuff. Um, which is basically significant, robust regulation, which was a surprise to me. Um, it actually left me with the, and I'm not optimistic much these days about the state of law and policy, but I was actually optimistic about the state of what might come out of at least of that subcommittee. Um, and I'm happy now if you want me to go into the, the substance of my uh, testimony, but I, I don't know if you want to. Sure, you, you can go. With sure. I mean, so, so briefly, um, I... In thinking about all the policies that have been put forth, as you say, it would not be a technology or privacy event unless we had the obligatory mention of artificial intelligence. There are roughly 40,000 proposals to regulate AI in the United States right now. All of them are wildly different. And so what I wanted to do in the testimony and what we put together as part of the Cordell Institute, and I'll put the, the link in the chat in a minute, is... A, uh, we urged lawmakers not to stop at what we call AI half measures. Uh, and so there are four different things that are currently being proposed right now that are very important, but they're not nearly enough. The first one, which is the go-to of all lawmakers, and this is also pops up in the dark patterns conversation lines. Well, what we just need is transparency, right? We just need to have Uh, to to make everything be clear, but transparency by itself doesn't solve anything. As a matter of fact, if you have transparency without accountability, then Mm -hmm. all you serve to do is justify the behavior because then the company gets to say, see, we told everybody and nobody had a problem with it, so we kept on doing it. Um, The second thing that we see a lot is ethical principles, particularly self-regulatory ethical principles. I think the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard pulled together all of the sort of self-espoused AI principles, and there was like 75 or 100 of them or something crazy. Um, And and they all sort of say various things like we promise to do good and not bad Um, and sort of various kind of anodyne generic commitments. Um, We know following the last 20 years of privacy regulation, the self-regulatory commitments are doomed to fail. Companies simply don't have the incentive to leave money on the table for the betterment of society. Um, And so they're going to do what they're going to do, right? They're going to fulfill their their commitments to shareholders by maximizing financial value, collect as much information as possible, um, you know, channel, funnel our behavior as much as possible so that we are most efficiently marketed to, right? So it's not just about personalization. It's about homogenization mm-hmm. of a populace so that we are easy to market to as units, right? And so I think that self-regulatory principles are great, right? It's easy to sort of have ethical principles, but they're, they're not enough. The third area that I got into, and this is critically important, is bias mitigation, particularly around wrongful uh, discrimination and the bad distributional effects of AI systems. And so, of course, a lot of the discussion around facial recognition technologies and other things centers on the fact that they don't work as well on people of color. They're biased along gender lines. Um, and a lot of the conversation is if we could just fix the bias in these systems, then they'll be great to use. But the problem is, is the more accurate a system is, the more dangerous it becomes. And that's because those in power in industry and in governments are going to be significantly more attracted to them because they work better. Right. And so all we will have done if we mitigate the bias is create a better tool for oppression and surveillance and behavioral control. And so I, I worry about as the uh, bias mitigation being where we stop, right? Of course, we should make things as more accurate as possible. We need to be concerned about the distributional effects I mean, accuracy rates of these systems. But that's just the starting point in thinking about justice with respect to AI. And then finally, and this actually goes back to the dark patterns discussion directly, the number one thing that, that regulators reach for, and I think that's just because it's the easiest, other than transparency, um, is control or consent, right? Um, And control and consent, I'll I'll try to be uh, very brief about this, is a broken regulatory model for information privacy. We should excise it, um, particularly consent, almost entirely 
um, which I realize is difficult given the way it's it, the sort of heavy place, the heavy role that it plays. But consent is illusory, first of all. It's not as though we get to call up Google and say, oh, Google, I only want you to collect my information on Sundays and only when I'm driving to the park and only when I'm in the mood for it, right? Like that would be real control. We would then really be empowered. But of course, we only get the options that are given to us, right? Christiana just did a great job of describing all the different ways in which our constructed environments sort of funnel us into preset things, all of which are fine with the company um, because it doesn't disrupt their business model. So it's an illusion. Even best case scenario, the option that we get. But it's not just an illusion. It's also overwhelming, right? So anyone that has interacted with cookie banners more than once realizes the sort of fatalism that creeps in after you've clicked your thousandth I agree button, or right? Or, or after you've sort of worked your way through and clicked, yes, I agree, or no, I don't agree. The problem with thinking about privacy as consent and control over information is that if we're given our wish for more privacy, we're given so much consent and so much control that we choke on it, right? And there's no way for us to meaningfully project risk into the future. I do this for a living and I can barely make it through any of the kinds of agreements, right? And the projections into the future and the, the countless ways in which we become vulnerable um, within these complex ecosystems. When we get into a car, they don't ask, do you want us to turn the airbag on or not? Right. Like you agree to have us not turn the airbag on. Right. We we have an environment set that keeps us safe so that the choices we do make um, are, are all safe. And so so it's overwhelming. And then finally, it's myopic. Right. The idea that what's best for society is the collected wisdom of billions of self-motivated decisions, I think, is misguided. Right. Because when I'm making a decision about whether to reveal my personal information, typically I say what's in it for me. Right. Not what's in it for the good of society. And so um, I, I have all these sort of weird um, self-focused risk calculations. But my information is used to train AI models and create UX UI based on population level inferences <laughs> that are used on other people. Right. And those other people didn't have the say as to whether I gave my data for the training model. Right. And so there are collective concerns and concerns about privacy as a social good that simply aren't captured. And so all of these our AI half measures, transparency, bias mitigation, self-regulatory principles, um, and uh, and consent and control. And so we have to move beyond that, right? And, and I'm happy to get into, I have a feeling a, a later question is what should we do about it? So maybe I'll pause there. Um, no, the, the, I think you should go on. So my, my, my follow-up question here is, Every time I speak about consent, and my master's thesis was about consent, is it? I know it's horrible, but taking out consent of the game means it gives opens the door to authoritarianism, right? So we we have rules from the top that will decide about us. So do, do, what, what's the, the practical? Yeah. So what, so that, I, would, I would resist that. I would resist that. I mean, I get the idea that like if you if you take you know consent away from the people that that it, it it's completely paternalistic and they've got no say in it. I don't think that's true at all. I think the alternative to a consent based model is one with clear rules that maximizes choice. Right, that the meaningful choice, safe choice, because consent's not the same thing as choice. Consent is legal magic that changes legal obligations of, of others and what they can do to us, right? Whereas maximizing choice can still be an important aspect of a regulatory approach. And this is where relational approaches, so Neil Richards and I, uh, a few years ago, wrote an article called A Relational Approach to Data Protection, where we tried to emphasize um, the importance in having these broad rules that create meaningful choice spaces for us, right? Um, uh, and, and make sure that companies simply aren't exploiting us because the real problem is that the people that create the environments within these choices are made, and this is the root of dark patterns, have an incentive for self-dealing. They want to get as much as they can in their own interests, regardless of how it affects us, right? And consent is to sort of kick that can. It, it allows these companies to escape responsibility by being like, well, you're the one that makes the choice, right? And even if no dark pattern is involved, I think consent is still going to be illusory, myopic, and, and overwhelming. Um, and so and so I, I, I think instead we simply need to focus on um, a lot of the other well-established principles in, in data privacy law, data minimization, uh, prohibitions on abuse of unfair and deceptive conduct, fairness, right? Like all of these things 
I think are far better for us to build specific rules and robust regulations around rather than individualistic notions. So, but this approach, so it would work more from a U.S. perspective, because the, if we think about the GDPR, we still would have for lawfulness, we need to choose basically uh, legitimate interest, consent. So, you, you so from your perspective, Europeans are screwed. No, no solution for the Europeans. Well, we are so screwed. So, look, the DMA, which is a, such a recent piece of legislation, requires consent and consent that actually is, is defined by reference to the GDPR, as you said, requires co co consent um, to data accumulation and, and data cross-use. So we are on the same page here, right? And how many dark patterns, Louisa, do we know uh, uh, regarding constant requests? So we are still on the same but from a pragmatic perspective, let's say what looking to the future. So how do we fix it? At least in mm -hmm. Europe, we need to change the GDPR then, because either either we go for, we say okay, we don't need Article Six anymore. That's it. We get focus on principles and we fairness. Let's go over. I don't. I'm not sure if at least in Europe, maybe in the US it would work, but in Europe, I think we we'll, Article Six is like the basics, right? So what's the the lawful uh, reason that you're collecting data? So is it legitimate interest is it contract but at least for, for from a commercial perspective would be like contract legitimate interest or, or consent maybe we start regulating contracts more strongly that that's it you have to establish Look, Louisa they, they I mean in the in the US and in the EU especially in the US there are these privacy by design solutions given by uh, materialized through cons through signals privacy signals and um, and so in, in, in the EU, maybe the ADPC signal where users are uh, facing just a, a setting where they put their preferences and they will not be further uh, nagged. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then in the US, the GPC signal is also uh, a big success in the US. So kind of a, a, a legacy from, from the do not track signal. It is binary, it's not purpose-based like the GDPR so requires, but there are these sort of privacy by design uh, uh, signal instances that could potentially work. In the EU, not yet, because it's not yet enforced, uh, but in, there are some steps uh, uh, there too, at some point. Yeah, but I, I love uh, Woody's perspective. I think it's... My sincere, I trend, I, I'm like naturally pragmatic. I, I just think that of uh, getting away. No, and when with, and when I say consent, I mean choice. So maybe I should, I should speak with it with the correct light. I, I mean giving the user a, a chance to interact. That, that's what I mean. So maybe I'm more talking oh. about choice. But uh, pra pragmatically, I think when we take you, you say we don't want consent doesn't work. I think it's difficult to implement. Mm -hmm. my, my 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 position is that I think of as a, from a business owner perspective or someone uh, trying to do. I, I want to do the right thing, and what what should I do? I, I think it becomes maybe some uh, legal uncertainty. I don't know. Maybe 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 uh, what do you, you want to say something like that? Maybe I I, I just don't have the big picture. But it yeah. feels not practical. No, so I, I get that it's daunting, right? So it certainly would be daunting to try to excise consent from the GDPR. Although, honestly, I think that given the way that the GDPR defines consent, it's practically impossible anyway. So the, the best way to go about it would just be like, listen, it's never gonna exist in mediated environments, period. Um, and I don't think it will. Um, but in terms of what would be tractable, um, every new move starts off with a fair amount of ambiguity, right? So when years ago, when courts first said, if you act um, negligently, uh, then you're going to be liable in tort law as a business. Court, businesses were probably like, what does it mean to act negligently? And then courts would respond, well, it means to act unreasonably under the circumstances. And then businesses said, what does that mean? Um, and over time, we've refined that. And so I'm what I'm advocating for is a similar sort of approach. And Neil and I have actually advocated for a two-tiered approach where you've got a broad duties of loyalty, care, confidentiality. For the EU, by the way, I think that this maps onto fairness in some really interesting ways, fairness and proportionality. So there may be a, um, a language um, translation, but I think that what we're getting at is exploitation, which I think we would agree would be kind of unfair. 
Um, and then actually specific rules that would be in furtherance of these broad duties. Um, and a lot of it would start with data minimization. Some of it would be, you know, safeguards. Some of it is, is safeguards for, um, you know, mitigation and social media. Some of it would, would be uh, what I've advocated for is language that's borrowed from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's um, prohibition on abusive trade practices, which is using people's own cognitive limitations against them for your own purposes, right? It's kind of a self-dealing rule, um, which is kind of what some of the dark patterns regulation looks like. It borrows some of that language, but I would advocate for an even broader rule. Uh, it would create a little uncertainty initially, but over time, just like all other kinds of indeterminate rules, we could refine it in, 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 I think, a meaningful way. Fantastic. I think this is a great way to end. We are short in time. So those I, uh, that have questions, please go to the LinkedIn event and tag Christiana and Woodrow. They are going to check it out later. So please, uh, po please post their, your comment, your question. And we will be happy to check it afterwards. Thank you so much, Christiana and Woody. This was a masterclass. I'm so happy we had this section. For, for those in the audience here, this was brilliant. I'm, I'm uh, it is one of my my favorite topics dark patterns and manipulation i think this was a gold discussion thank you so much for accepting my invitation i am so happy we we are here today we, we are having this exchange uh thanks again to mino west this episode sponsor so check out their data mapping solutions at www.minoos.ai and if you want to get informed of the next events please subscribe to luisasnewsletter.com Everybody, thank you so much for joining, for being so always so participative and nice and kind in the chat. And I, I, I think you saw here that Christian and Woody, they left many useful links while we were speaking. They were also like multitasking and, and posting the links here. And uh, see you in the next month in the next live talk. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank Louisa. you.